From the Heritage Foundation, this is Heritage Explains. The fog of war. For students and practitioners of military strategy, it's a well-known phrase, describing the uncertainty that pervades any battlefield. It was first described by the Prussian military author Karl von Clausewitz in his On War, which was published in 1832. He said, War is the realm of uncertainty. Three quarters of the factors on which action in war is based are wrapped in a fog of greater or lesser uncertainty. A sensitive and discriminating judgment is called for, a skilled intelligence to scent out the truth. War affects many areas of the globe, notably the nation of Israel, our critical ally in the Middle East. Seeing through the fog of such a conflict can be very difficult. Heritage Vice President Victoria Coates spoke to Israeli statesman Yuli Yol Edelstein. This week, we go even deeper into the conflict as she sits down with Israeli author and commentator Carolyn Glick. She served in the Israeli Defense Force and later in the Israeli government under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. In this conversation from this past Friday, February 9th, they discuss how the Biden administration's posture towards Israel is adding to the fog. Welcome to Heritage Explains. It's a great pleasure today to welcome my dear friend, former colleague, and senior contributing editor to the Jewish News Syndicate, the host of the Carolyn Glick Show, and the former foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel. Carolyn is visiting us in Washington from Israel to give all Americans a view of what is happening on the ground. It has been, for me personally, a very interesting 24 hours vis-a-vis the conflict. I went to the Israeli embassy yesterday morning to bear witness to the atrocity videos from the Hamas GoPros and the video phones of the victims and the video phones of the first responders to get that firsthand sense of how horrific the events were of October 7th. And the most sobering thing is that the Israeli embassy officials told us that's not the worst of the footage. So what we saw was unbelievably shocking, moving, graphic, horrific the glee in the eyes of the Hamas fighters and the Palestinians of Gaza who welcomed them back is is truly inhuman. Uh, and that is a problem with which we are all going to have to deal. And in the context of that experience, to listen to the president of the United States last night refer to the Israeli response as over the top, as if it were a prom dress or something. It was just so dismissive and an understanding of the seriousness of the threat that Israel faces. And so with that background, I thought it would be an important opportunity for all members of the Heritage family to hear from someone like Carolyn, who has been directly involved reporting on observing events on the ground, both how she experienced October 7th and then how things are 
are progressing on the ground in Israel, what the real progress is on the war. So again, Carolyn, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to Heritage. And I will turn over to you for your introductory remarks. Well, thank you very much, Victoria. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate um, so much uh, your extraordinary friendship for Israel personally and also for Heritage's extraordinary support for the State of Israel across the years. So it's a real privilege and pleasure to be joining you today. Uh, So that's first and foremost. Um, So October 7th was really a watershed moment, um, both in the level of the atrocity and in um, what it means for Israel in terms of how we understand that event, what takeaway lessons the people of Israel, doesn't matter uh, political views or anything else, what it really did in terms of reawakening sort of what the poet refers to as ancient chords of memory um, in the Jewish people uh, in Israel, and I would dare say around the world, what happened to us that day. Because uh, for many decades, the Palestinians have been saying that they want to kill all the Jews. And every time that they've been given the opportunity with suicide bomb belts, with roadside bombs, shooting, killing families in their beds, all kinds of things that they've done, but it's been sporadic. It's been one family at a time. It's been penetration of one cell of terrorists into a community, not, you know, 3,000 into a country. And so we've seen it all. We've heard it all. They've promised to do everything that they did. They educate their children to do all of these things from really the earliest childhood and preschool uh, throughout their school systems and uh, their religious uh, institutions, their mosques, etc. So they have a society that's geared towards genocide that inculcates the desire to commit genocide, to annihilate the Jews, to destroy the state of Israel. And we've seen incidents of it. But what happened on October 7th really was the whole-scale annihilation of everybody that came into their path. And in with the gravest, most un- unimaginable uh, sadism and ecstasy. And, and so what that showed people uh, was that, uh, first of all, obviously, words have meaning and that they were always serious. And this was always going to be their goal. And we wanted to put it away. We didn't want to believe it. We wanted, and I'm talking about all Israelis, not just leftists who like peace and da-da-da. Nobody imagined that it was this level of truth. It put the concept of coexistence in the garbage can. Because how do you coexist with a society that's organized around solely around your annihilation? That they have nothing beyond that. If you go ours, And then since then, We've seen just how deeply held this conviction, this murderous, this barbaric, this sadism really is in their society because our soldiers who have been on the ground in Gaza since uh, late October, early November, have seen that in every single home, they have some sort of an iconic image on the wall that indicates their goal of annihilating Israel, whether it's the map of Israel that's marked Palestine, whether it's Jerusalem, uh, the Dome of the Rock and on the Temple Mount. And uh, everybody has guns or an entrance to a subterranean tunnel. Our, our soldiers, in one, one film I saw is our soldiers walked into a house and they 
there was an iPad sitting there of a teenage girl. And, you know, teenage girls, what do we put on, you know, what do you, what is a screensaver for a teenage girl? It's, it's a rock star or a Hollywood celebrity. So this young high school age girl had a picture of Adolf Hitler as her screensaver on her iPad. And, you know, that's something really stunning. You have the whole international community, such as it is, uh, calling Gaza an open-air prison, or everybody's really poor, and it's opulent. The neighborhoods of Gaza City and really throughout Gaza, they have these beautiful promenades, they have restaurants, they have parks, the apartments are all have the top-of-the-line furniture in them, the best electronic goods, better than the average Israeli family has, and just piles and piles of cash everywhere. Nobody takes anything because you're not allowed to take from our enemies and under Jewish law. And so we're no spoils, everything just... But the amount of opulence, the wealth, is also shocking because it also puts to death the concept of economic peace, that you worry about the prosperity of the Palestinians, you give them lots and lots of money and international aid programs, and they'll moderate because just like us, they'll have mortgages and middle-class motivations and ambitions, and they're just going to go on about their lives. And so you see they get all of these things. And they don't care. Their entire society is organized around genocide. That's one of the aspects of the awakening of the Israeli people, the Jewish people, to the nature of our enemy that we didn't want to believe it, but now we recognize that it's a zero-sum game. So I think that kind of shattering experience that we experience, and obviously the cruelty and the trauma of what we experienced on October 7th is always sort of inside and making us gasp. And, you know, I find with myself personally, I just read one line of something that happened on October 7th, and I just can't breathe. And you just find yourself sobbing in the middle of nothing when you think about what happened. And I know that I'm I'm not unique at all. So that's kind of the mood that Israel's been in. And you know, all of our sons have been in Gaza. My husband's son, my stepson, was there for three and a half months in the combat engineers as a reservist, father of three. And everybody has sons and fathers and uncles and boyfriends and husbands inside 300,000. So a lot of them are coming home now, and there's a huge concern that why are you letting them out if we haven't won? Everybody's very happy to have the reservists coming home, but we just had a rally with thousands of people out in Jerusalem on Thursday night demanding to be sent back into combat because we want to win. You know, I think that's the mood in Israel. And then on the ground in Gaza, we're doing extremely well. The Americans have placed a lot of constraints on our operations, which maybe we'll get into a few of the key ones in our discussions, but despite the fact that in a lot of ways we have our hands tied behind our back, we've made more profound progress on the ground in Gaza than any military has ever made. And nobody's faced, not even Americans in Iraq or in Afghanistan, such a complex urban warfare environment where you're fighting above ground and in a tunnel complex that has never been seen before um, with hostages that you're trying to protect. And yet we've been going tunnel by tunnel, house by house, and taking over Gaza street by street, block by block. We're almost done with Khan Yunus, which seems like why has it taken you know so long in one city? And the answer is that it's it it makes Mosul that the U.S. you know fought in Iraq 
look like a walk in the park in terms of the complexity of the battleground. So our soldiers on the ground are really just making miracles happen, and and nobody imagined that they could do it. Everybody thought that we'd have a lot, a lot more casualties. There's a West Point uh, professor of urban warfare, I think it is, who's been quoted in the Israeli media. He was stating openly that there's never been anything like what Israel's doing in Gaza. So all the talk that Israel can't win, no, it'll take a few months. Nobody's ever fought like this before. But everybody's pretty secure in, in understanding and confident that we're winning. I think that story is not at all getting out in the United States because it certainly doesn't suit the narrative that is being peddled by the White House. But I was remiss in not uh, mentioning that you served in the Israeli Defense yes. Forces, and obviously you have your your stepson and your sons will serve in the future. From that experience, can you talk a little bit about those restraints uh, that are coming with the USAID? Because, you know, quite frankly, the members of Congress that engage with me, and I know you've had some very high-level meetings this week, which we'll, we'll discuss later on, but there is a grave concern that what happened in the 2014-2015 timeframe under then Secretary of State John Kerry to try to slow walk aid, place restrictions, place conditions on aid. So far, the president has said he, he won't do that publicly, but curious to see what you guys are observing behind the scenes. We have to conserve our ammunition, and we've actually had dozens of soldiers die because we didn't bomb from the air because we're conserving our air munitions because we don't know what we're going to get from the U.S. and we still have to deal with Lebanon. We're in a problem. I mean, last week or two weeks ago, Around 10 days ago, 21 soldiers were killed in a booby-trapped house that we had booby-trapped, and we were going to blow it up because it was used as a fire zone against our soldiers, and it was right across the border with Israel, so it had to go. This is something that, under normal circumstances, you would have used artillery or you would have bombed from the air, and you wouldn't have placed your soldiers in danger, but we brought in engineers and infantry to protect them in this house, and just as they had finished booby-trapping the structure, uh, Hamas terrorists shot an RPG into it as they were about to leave, and so the whole house just came down like a like a house of cards on top of them, and they were just blown to smithereens. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that if we didn't have to conserve ammunition, that that probably wouldn't have happened. And we've had other things with humanitarian aid. So the Americans are demanding that we let them be fully electrified in the middle of a war. We have to provide them with fuel, you know, operate all their infrastructure in the middle of a war zone when the people are being used as human shields. And this is just prolonging Hamas's uh, ability to fight by keeping them well fed and keeping them fueled up for their generators and their tunnels. And we had, I think, nine soldiers killed when they were electrocuted by a live uh, electricity line that fed into this tank or something. It is this whole big mess, operational accident. But again, if the electricity had been off, it wouldn't have happened. So, you know, there are a lot of constraints that we're operating under. But today, this morning, I woke up to the news and, you know, it's it, the the aid, uh, the $14.3 billion that President Biden pledged to Israel at the outset of the war that still hasn't passed through Congress for various reasons. Senator Schumer apparently has the votes now to pass it as a standalone bill in the Senate, which then Speaker Johnson would be able to get through this, the House and send it to the president for signature. And so just as Senator Schumer announced that he had the votes to pass it in the Senate, the White House put out this um, national security memorandum 
on safeguards and accountability for U.S. military aid. What they're doing now is that last week, I think it was Senator Van Hollen from Maryland and others, uh, uh, Chris Murphy from Connecticut. So they were putting out the statement that, you know, they want uh, to use the Leahy law, which uh, conditions military aid on uh, abiding by humanitarian standards. And so this is all a slander because they're saying that Israel isn't abiding by humanitarian standards that the U.S. military abides by. Um, when we do, there's a Hebrew saying, go prove you don't have a sister. You're claiming that we're doing something we're not doing. You're basing your claims on testimonies by Hamas terrorists. And then you're saying you're going to condition our aid. So this was an idea that Bernie Sanders had uh, like over a month ago that was voted down in the Senate when he tried to put a, an amendment on the aid bill to Israel. And that was shot down. And everybody said, oh, no, we don't agree with Bernie Sanders. But here, this is now a, mem- a national security memorandum that the president put out. So assuming that both houses pass the aid, it comes to the president's desk. And even if he signs it, what he's saying is, well, we might not give it to you. And that's sort of part of the overall slow walking that we've seen of the resupply of the munitions. NBC News came out with a report two weeks ago that they're kind of thinking about slow walking uh, artillery and JDAMs. And JDAMs are always funny because if you want to minimize civilian casualties, then you should be giving Israel as many JDAMs as they want because that turns dumb bombs into smart bombs. But uh, they did this to us in 14 as well where they put an embargo on Hellfire missiles so that we would kill more people with artillery shells. So it's the same concept that you're killing too many civilians here. We're not going to let you kill fewer civilians, and then we're going to punish you for killing too many civilians. And we're going to define civilians to include anybody that Hamas says is a civilian. So it's all this kind of double talk that, yes, we're on your side, but here, substantively, we're denying you the assistance that you need in order to win, and we're second-guessing you, and we're slandering you at the same time. That is a grave concern. It has been part of the concern of, of those of us who do support getting the aid through the Congress. As you know, there are a lot of moving parts here, and our original problem with the emergency supplemental was that Israel was mixed in with Ukraine, which is mixed in with Taiwan, which is mixed in with border. Mm -hmm. And it is our opinion that these things all deserve their own votes. And so we were very supportive of the 14.1. Speaker Johnson got through the House with bipartisan support in October, November timeframe, Mm -hmm. when it should have gone. Right. And, you know, I thought it was deeply disgraceful for someone like John Fetterman, my junior senator from Pennsylvania, who literally wraps himself in the Israeli flag. And I I prefer that to the behavior of a Chris Murphy or or Bernie Sanders, of course. But he walked back from that rally on the mall and voted against bringing that aid to the floor. So did Senator Schumer? Yeah. Because of the division in the Senate, you know, we need that bipartisanship, which was achievable in the House. I mean, if you can achieve something in the House, that might mean you're on the right side. Uh, But the greatest danger I see is a presidential veto, which would just be message-wise devastating. And so making sure we have – I mean, you can't get a guarantee out of this White House, but some kind of assurance from the White House that whatever it is that comes out, he won't veto is what I'm focused on now. I think that's incredibly important what you said, and I think there are two other things that are also important in this regard. One is that – what we're getting is a lot of sort of gaslighting where they say yes, yes, and then and then they do no. 
And so what the concern is with this national security memorandum is that he's going to sign it and there's going to be a big ceremony and everybody's going to be happy and that'll be the end of the story. But then we won't get the aid because he's going to be alleging against us things that make it impossible to actually, you know, that we can't. We can't assuage concerns that are based on imaginary allegations and therefore that you're always going to prove right. Because if you say we're, we're killing too many civilians and then you say that every Hamas terrorist is a civilian, then what you're saying is you can't kill anybody and therefore you can't win. And so if, you, if you're fighting to win, then you're on the wrong side of justice and we're not going to give you any weapons. So I, th- I think that the executive orders that they've been passing is one thing. Another aspect of it that really isn't, isn't as clearly understood that it's an incredible danger is that we now are really at, at the height, this uh, memorandum that came out this morning or was reported this morning as part of a larger effort by the administration that really started in December, I would say, to demonize Israel and to sort of overturn the moral compass of of uh, the American people in a way by saying that the Palestinians who engaged in a one-day holocaust against Israel and wildly support it to this day Um, that they're the innocent ones and that the people we see it at the International Court of Justice, Israel is literally being put on trial for genocide, for fighting against a foe that wants to annihilate us and took action in order to advance that goal in in the worst sort of way on October 7th and continues to hold our hostages, 136 innocent individuals, including six American citizens, uh, and and treat them with a barbaric sadism that uh, is unspeakable, as you saw in the video last night or yesterday morning. So the administration has taken a series of steps over the past several weeks to try to augment the claim that you hear in places like Dearborn, Michigan, and Detroit uh, that claim that Israel doesn't have a moral right to exist, that the good guys in this battle are Hamas and their supporters, um, and that the American Jews are part of a conspiracy for defending Israel, and that anybody in Congress or Senate, I saw this on my own Twitter feed yesterday when I post pictures of myself with the senators who were kind enough to meet with me, um, that they're all in the pockets of a Jewish conspiracy, um, and they're not loyal Americans. So you see these kinds of actions that are being taken both domestically in terms of demonizing American Jews and seeking essentially to disenfranchise them, and Americans who support Israel. And to demonize Israel, so the so the Biden so Biden put out an executive order, uh, I think it was last week, uh, where he placed sanctions on four Israelis, mm-hmm. uh, essentially turning them into a non non people. Nobody's even allowed to provide them with legal assistance without placing themselves at risk of being sanctioned. And they're. The strongest allegation that they have against them is hooliganism. So you can imagine, why is this happening? It's to delegitimize not only the half million Israelis who live uh, in Judea and Samaria or in unified Jerusalem or in the Golan Heights as living in areas that belong to another people, but also um, to demonize Israel. To say essentially that there's something fundamentally illegitimate about Israel's right to defend itself. And you see then with the Leahy Amendment, what they want, the Leahy Law, they want to apply it to Israeli military units who are operating in Judea and Samaria. So this is a little bit in the weeds. But basically, we've killed 500 terrorists from Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Fatah who have been planning the kinds of operations against Israeli communities in Judea and Samaria and in Israeli uh, metropolitan 
uh, centers uh, along the lines of what we saw on October 7th, and the motivation is sky high uh, among Palestinian Authority security forces and their aligned terrorist cells in the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria. The State Department's position on this is to investigate every single counterterror operation that Israel is engaging in in Judea and Samaria as if Israel committed a war crime. And they're basing their allegations against Israel on claims being made by Palestinians who are engaged in terrorism or support terrorism from anarchist organizations, from organizations that do not accept Israel's right to exist and seek its annihilation. These form the basis of UN statistics that, as Tablet Magazine reported this week, are then adopted by the U.S. security coordinator for the West Bank and brought to Washington as truth. So all of these things are made to make it impossible for Israel to defend itself in Judea and Samaria and uh, to uh, criminalize the Israeli government and the Israeli people for not agreeing with the State Department that Israel should quit the cradle of Jewish civilization in Judea and Samaria and just hand it over to Palestinian terrorists in order to advance the cause of Palestinian statehood. Well, I think the question of Palestinian statehood is is a much hotter topic in Washington, certainly, than it is in Jerusalem these days. And you know, one thing that you said really struck me is the the association of anyone who is very supportive of Israel. There is this very vocal minority on social media that immediately claims there's some kind of grand conspiracy, and it's one reason – it has been very important to us as as Heritage to take a very forward-leaning role uh, assembling our new Semitism Task Force, uh, which includes uh, over 20 organizations now, many of them Jewish organizations, but we are not a Jewish organization. Right. And so that's why it's really important for us to stand up and be counted in this context. Last question, because you're very popular and we have to get you to your next audience, but can you speak a little bit about those congressional meetings, what what you gleaned uh, from the congressmen and senators? And I have to tell you, when I heard you were coming this week, I was worried because of the shenanigans in the Congress that meetings were going to be hard to come by, and you had an incredible slate of folks who wanted to meet with you, and we still have more today. So if you could just give us some highlights of where the heads are in, in Congress, what they asked you, what you asked them, if it, what stood out to you. So first of all, what stood out to me was uh, the profound nature of support for Israel that we received from uh, the constituents of the uh, senators and the congressmen that I met with and the depth of their commitment to Israel. And I met with Senator Cruz and I met with Senator Cotton and I met with Senator Haggerty and I met with um, and I met with uh Congressman Roy, and I met with Congressman Waltz and uh, Good, and they were all extremely supportive of Israel, even when they were concerned about fiscal issues with where the coverage from the 14.3, and they were very uh, concerned uh, that the Biden administration is really, I mean, I, they can speak for themselves, but I was impressed by their concern that what the administration is doing is antithetical not only to Israel's survival, because this is really, as we saw on October 7th, this is a war for our survival. I mean, we have to win this war as profoundly as the United States won 
World War II, what I said in my meetings was, if you were in 1946, if you were in Timbuktu or Tijuana, you knew who won the war. You knew that the United States won and that the Germans lost. You knew it. Everybody knew it. And that's the kind of victory that we need here, because if there's any question in anybody's mind about who emerged as victorious from this battle, then our very existence is going to be in question and we're open. And as Prime Minister Netanyahu said in a press conference the other day, the next massacre is just a matter of time. And so we have to win that way. And so they were very concerned that the, what the administration is doing with this fake humanitarian assistance that they're forcing Israel to bring in, where, where the government now assesses in Jerusalem and our security services that 60 to 70 percent of the humanitarian aid that Israel is compelled to bring in due to American pressure goes directly to Hamas. So it's not even going to the people that they want to serve. But it also, the other concern is just how devastating this is for the United States and for America's national security, both because if Israel loses and America is not seen as standing with Israel, God forbid, then that wrecks America's position in the region. And more to the point, when you see what's happening on the border and you see the riots in the streets of the United States of Hamas supporters, they were so empowered by what happened on October 7th in Israel. And they feel like, you know, yeah, we're the winning side here. So the likelihood of them then taking it to the next step, which is not only to call for uh, from New York to Gaza, whatever it is that they're saying, long live the Intifada, globalize the Intifada, that they're going to start uh, acting violently towards their fellow Americans here on the mainland. So, you know, American national security, both in the region for U.S. forces who have been attacked nearly 200 times since October 7th by Hamas's allies in Iran, or whether it's here in the United States itself, you know, America's national security is very wrapped up with this. So they're very concerned that Israel get the support it needs from the United States and that Israelis also recognize the depth of American support. So I'm going to be bringing home that message uh, when I go back on Sunday that we have to recognize that the Biden administration may be trying to change opinion by slandering us, but that the depth of American support for Israel is really something that we can take to the bank. So I'm coming home very encouraged by that as well. Well, I'm, I'm glad. And I think the point about the what's coming across our southern border, the threat that they are showing us that they're here. Yeah. Uh, right now, it's been kind of a tacit threat of violence. We'll, we'll see what happens with that. But it comes back to me that the terrorists on October 7th didn't ask for anybody's passport. They were perfectly happy to kill Americans, kill you, Brits kill French, kill Thais. Uh, yeah, kill people. I mean, kill Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they are indiscriminate. And if they are successful against the Jews, the Jews would not in any way be the end of it. Yeah. So, uh, Carolyn, I can't thank you enough for this. Thank you. Uh, obviously, we will welcome you back anytime. Thanks. You mentioned Iran at the end. We didn't get into that, but we. I know we both have strong views, and so <laughs> yes. we could have another conversation in the future. So thank you again. Thank you so much. And I'll be happy to come back anytime. Thank you to Victoria Coates and to Carolyn Glick for their contributions to this episode. You can find more from Victoria Coates on X at Victoria Coates, as well as at heritage.org. You can also find Carolyn Glick on X at Carolyn Glick and at carolynglick.com. And thanks as always to you for listening to Heritage Explains. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions, you can email us at heritageexplains at heritage.org. Take care, and we'll see you next week.
Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It's written and produced by Mark Ghani, Lauren Evans, and John Pop.